This is Jeff Stanfield. Thank you for listening to Big Honker Podcast. Big Honker Podcast is sponsored by Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. Two fat boys from Wichita Falls, Texas had a vision 27 years ago they were going to start getting guiding hunts. 27 years later, we were one of the largest waterfowl outfitters in the United States. We had 27 years in the, in the business. We'll take care of you. If you're looking for that dove hunt, deer hunt, duck hunt, goose hunt, Texas, Oklahoma, shoot some pheasants or doves, wild hogs, call us at Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. That's www.stanfieldhunting.com, and we look forward to talking to you. Just ask for the fat guy. The Big Honker Podcast is sponsored by William and Chris Vineyards in High Texas. William Chris Vineyards with the Sway Rose. Sway is available at HEB Central Market and Whole Foods. Guys, 4th of July is coming up. You want to get your wife a little, little on the tipsy side and have a good time? Stop by and get you some William and Chris wine. That's at Sway Rose. They sell that at Bucky's HEB Central Market and Whole Foods. You can look them up on the internet at www.williamchrisvineyards.com. That's in High Texas. Wedding, rehearsals get-togethers, girls' night, guys' night, whatever you want to do, they can take care of you. And once again, that's William Chris Vineyards in High Texas. Hey, everybody. Zach Shaver here. You ever look out in the distance and wonder why those ducks circling aren't finishing in your decoys? Well, it's probably because you don't have a 737 duck call on your lanyard. Guys, take it from me. If you take anything from this podcast, listen to my advice on this. I've been doing this since I was four years old. I'm 25 now. I'll let you do the math. All right. I carry nothing but 737 on my lanyard. It is my go-to call when the going gets tough. When I need to get the birds down, that's what I'm going to. Do yourself a favor and go to www.737duckcalls.com and order you one today. Also, look them up on their social media on Instagram and Facebook at 737duckcalls. Hey, boys and girls. Andy Shaver here, head guide for Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. Thank you so much for listening to this show. This episode is brought to you by Dive Bomb Industries. Dive Bomb is the leader in silhouette manufacturing in the decoy market today. They're what we use. They handle every hunting situation that we throw at them, whether it be rain or snow or muck or mud, whatever the task, Dive Bombs are up for it. And for listeners of this podcast, you can save yourself some money by going to DiveBombIndustries.com today Use the promo code BIGHONKER at checkout. That's promo code BIGHONKER, all lowercase. Go fill up your shopping cart. Use a promo code. You can save yourself some money. The season is coming. You need to go get your decoys now. Get them organized. Give yourself plenty of time. That way, uh, you know, mid-August it gets here and you're like, oh, shit, I hadn't got my decoys yet. Go today. Use the promo code BIGHONKER. You can save yourself some money. Now. This episode is a special one because we have three-time world live goose calling champion Scott Trinan on the show today. He is also the owner of Molt Gear Game Calls, which is what I use. Uh, he, he's just, he's an interesting, interesting guy and you'll, you will never ever meet a more knowledgeable individual about the birds that we chase. He just, he knows his facts inside and out. He's an incredibly incredibly uh gifted man to to be around and talk about he just he knows his stuff so uh this was a fun one this is one that i have been looking forward to doing uh since we started the show so without further ado here he is the powerful scott trinan
three, two, one. Boom. And welcome to the Big Honker Podcast. I'm Jeff Stanfield. I'm Andy Shaver. Happy to have everybody along. We have a special, special treat for you. We have on the phones, three-time world live goose calling champion, Scott Trinan. Scott, how are you? I'm doing well, guys. How are you two doing? Pretty good. It's a little hot down here, but uh, we're managing. Scott, I'm going to... I'm going to jump right in and ask you some questions because you're a three-time world champion, but we're going to back before we get to that. We're going to start at the very beginning of Scott Trinan. Now, how did you get into hunting and goose hunting? You know, I got into it. I was probably 10 10 years old. Uh, I grew up on a dairy farm uh, up here in Vanderbilt, Minnesota, a small dairy farm. And really how I got into it, I was out doing helping with chores one night. Um, and I heard a flock of geese land uh, in the cornfield that we have behind the barn there, and they came in, and I just, I just remember that distinct sound they made. Uh, you know, they were big ones, uh, just that real hair-raising, cluck-moan sequence, and they landed in the field back there, and I just thought that was the coolest thing ever because my dad, he's never hunted in his life. My grandpa doesn't hunt. I don't have uncles that hunt. Uh, no brothers. I mean, really nobody in my family hunts, so um, I really got into it uh, by hearing those geese out behind the, behind the family farm there, and uh, one thing led to, uh, to getting a goose call for Christmas and practicing, and uh, that's really, really how I got started in it. Well, what was your first goose call? Mine was a Loman 4-in-1 interchangeable choke flute call. And I still got it on my mantle. It's one of those that, uh, uh, towards the end of the bell, you could take out those. Uh, there was a choke that they made on the inside of it. Um, so you could choke the air down more, or you could open it up more uh, based on your skill level. And, uh, yeah, that was the first goose call that my parents got me uh, probably back in 91, somewhere right around there, 92, uh, for Christmas. And uh, I mean, it, it's amazing how far the how far the goose call has come since those days. It came a long way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you uh, uh, you know you look back at the the old resident cavity or the flute calls, uh, you know they they had a good tone to them, um, or a decent tone, anyways. I guess you could say, but the the capabilities of today's calls are uh, um, are just uh, well far superior from uh you know 30 years ago when, when when you first started blowing that call how long did you stay on the flute before you went to any short read calls i bet you it was probably see i started see up in minnesota you have to be too far back then i think it's still the case but you have to be 12 years old before you can take gun training uh and then be able to hunt by yourself so for the first couple of years I just went out with some, uh, I had nine of those flambo foam decoys that they made. I don't even know when. Uh, my parents found them for me at a garage sale or something. And so I had nine of those, and I went out and sat on the fence line and just tried to call geese in without any gun uh, <laughs> the first couple years that I started hunting. And then um, I went through gun safety. Um, and then started, you know, being able to carry and hunt on my own from there. Because I really didn't have anybody to take me. I think you can hunt when you're younger than 12 with a gun, but you got to be accompanied by an adult, 
Well, that was the problem with me is that I didn't have anybody to take, so I just went by myself without a gun, and then um, got my gun safety started hunting. So I would probably say that I switched over to a short read in ninety. Probably ninety four or ninety five. Let, let me guess was it a Tim was it a Tim Grounds half breed? You know what the first short read goose call I had was made by a local guy here by the name of Mike Ducart. Oh yeah, <laughs> Mike's a good friend of mine. You probably know him. Uh, yeah, illusion game calls. Uh, alley or valley, I think down there or something, and uh, he made a short read goose call. Um, I believe that was the first one I had, but I also had um, a half-breed very, very similar time. I might have got them about at the same time. If you, it, was, uh, it was a half-breed that was made out of the old uh, Mossy Oak breakup. If you watch uh, Tornado Alley towards when he's hunting down here with us, if you see a kid with a bad Chili Bowl haircut, that is uh, yours truly. Is that you? That's me, the one with the old-school camouflage on. Oh, I yep. remember watching for that. Yeah, I do. Yep. Yeah, I kid, prayed for that kid quite a bit. Ter- got, had a had a terrible chili bowl ha- haircut, and that's me. And my yeah, that was a pretty good. That was a pretty good video from back then. Uh, it, re- it really was. Uh, some of the starting of it was up here in Rochester, and uh, yeah, yep. yeah, not bad, not bad. But that was probably the first one of those two short rings were the first one um, that I picked up. That that and that chili bowl haircut Andy had, I think me and Michelle paid about twenty bucks for him to have that, and he just had to have that kind of haircut. Not back then, it wasn't twenty dollars. <laughs> there were no haircuts. Does he still bucks. have it or no? Uh, a little bit more modern, you know. There you go. You got to stay up with the there times. So so Mike Newcart was. Did, did you meet Mike or did you just buy his call? You know what? His nephew I graduated with from Cass and Manorville. Um, but with that being said, I also started hunting with Mike. Um, it, it, it was kind of a crazy story. See, I hunted over in Manorville. He was in Rochester a lot. Manorville is about 10 to 12 miles west of Rochester, and we had a nice little um, population of geese here, you know, between six or 700 uh, that would stage in Manorville every year. Um, and I was hunting one morning, had permission on a field, and Mike Ducart and some other guys also had permission, and they showed up that morning, and we hunted together. So, you know, back then when you're, you know, 14, 15 years old, whatever it was, uh, and you get to hunt with a guy that makes his own call, uh, you, it was a pretty cool morning. So, yeah, that's when I started hunting with Mike, and I tell you what, Mike and me uh, are still good friends today. He started, uh, you know, He's got his illusion and his dear society stuff, and he still works here in town and, and whatnot. So, yeah, that relationship that was a long time ago still still exists today. Mike is a good guy. I've spent many miles on the road with him hunting and visiting up here. And Mike came up – the first time I met Mike, Mike and Randy Bartz came up here and went hunting with me. Now, that's a heck of a two – that's two innovators in our business right there together. Right. Yep. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, Randy's just up the road in uh, Orinoco here, and uh, um, obviously getting a little bit, a little bit older now, a little bit slower. But uh, we've uh, we've spent a bunch of days in the field together too. So Randy, Randy's definitely one of the one of the good guys. You bet. We couldn't remember if uh, if he was still alive or not. We hadn't heard anything from him in a while. And then he is. 
And every year he gives a seminar up at Game Fair. It's supposed to happen at 10 o'clock, and he gets there at about 1230. So he just kind of sits in on other people's uh, uh, seminars and then just kind of strolls around. And, uh, yeah, he's he's still alive. He's he's doing good. And uh, the old Silver Fox uh, uh, is... Is a good guy, but yeah, he's he's just up the road, and then uh, we'll always see him every day. We're hunting. He drives by and sits on the side of the road and uh, watches us hunt. So he he's around. He still loves it. He just doesn't get out there very much anymore. So we've debated this kind of back and forth. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that there is a more uh, what's the word I'm looking for uh, a transformational product other than the flag that just completely changed the landscape of goose hunting? Has there been a more transformational? Has has there been something that has changed the game more than the flag? The goose call. You think so? The the oh, absolutely. Well, yeah, this, absolutely. Let's say in the uh, last thirty years, though, because we've had goose calls, and goose calls are a lot better than they used to be. My argument is mm-hmm. a decoy has not changed a bit from when the Indians were using them, and the well, it's a little bit. I, I mean, it's changed, changed but the same basic principle is there. And, mm-hmm. and and we've had a goose call since I don't know when the first goose call was done nineteen ten nineteen twenty nineteen thirties, but mm-hmm. I think the I think in the last thirty years the flag has changed water, goose hunting more than anything else has. Um, I would say it's the goose call. I would say it's the goose call. Um, you know I've been I've been fortunate enough, probably much like you guys too, to travel you know all over North America hunting Canada geese and. What has changed uh, uh, is the calling dynamic. Um, it used to be, I remember when, uh, you know, I got good on a goose call. You could be one-man show out there. And, and, and this is all based on pressure in your area. You know, it's, sure. I mean, some, some places are, you know, uh, they don't get much pressure. Uh, some places we travel, we question if the geese have seen decoys yet this year, and there's probably a good argument that they had not. Um, even in December and January, but, uh, it's all based on pressure. But, uh, you know, for instance, you know, our geese here in Rochester, uh, when I started guiding, um, it was a one man just cluck and moan and wave the flag. Yeah. Now it is, if you don't have three to five championship callers in the pit, you have no shot, zero shot. Uh, that's a lot of it's based on the pressure, obviously, but, uh, when you go around the places and we travel and we, uh, you know, usually go with a group of guys and you can see what calling does to birds that have maybe necessarily not been called at with that amount of, uh, volume, teamwork, finesse, uh, clarity, um, and you name it, you, you can see a different reaction uh, that you ever seen out of a flag. You know, uh, I remember, you know, back in probably 2000, we generally stopped using the flag about Halloween because it just didn't work anymore. Um, the goose call has always worked, yeah. you know, whether that was early or late. So, you know, I, th- I think they're both good arguments. I would have to say what I've seen uh, over the last 26, 27 years has definitely been uh, uh, the goose call just because it's, um, it's evolved in its own self. You know, from a flute call making a making a moan and a little bit of a honk to now you have almost replicated all of the sounds in a goose language 
at a tone that uh, can travel a long ways and the speed of it. Um, I just think that has changed uh, changed hunting more than anything and probably delivered the most amount of pressure um, also over the last, you know, probably the last 15 years it's changed the most, I would think. Yeah. Now, where y'all live is the land of the giants in Rochester. Do those birds migrate? Do they do they migrate in? Or are you basically hunting the same birds that are year round? Well, so back in 1962, they rediscovered them here in Rochester, and they 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 kept them in captivity, basically um, kept them protected for about five six years until they they got up to a you know a healthy number of birds, you know 35 3600 birds. And they let them migrate back north. Well, the problem was they never migrated because they were getting fed. They were in captivity. They're like, what do you mean? We're supposed to go somewhere. So then they started in 67, the transplant system, where they started transplanting geese to, you know, Kalamazoo, Michigan, Thief River Falls, uh, Vermilion, South Dakota. And that really is what basically, that's why we have resident geese in urban settings is because they took those geese. Now, one area that they took them to that was the key area was the Okamak Marsh of Manitoba, which is located about 30 miles north of the town of Winnipeg. Well, that marsh back in the 1700s was gigantic. It was 170,000 acres, you know. Now, over farming practices, has been shrunk down. So when they, they, they transplanted them up there in the late 60s onto the Okamak Marsh, those geese would nest there, and now the marsh, and back then it was, it's probably about 10,000 acres, uh, would migrate from the Okamak Marsh directly to Rochester without stopping, nothing in between. Uh, they were, you know, one of the oldest studied flocks of birds, and they would migrate straight from Rochester, or straight from Okamak to Rochester. Now, you know, with the influx of more geese and, you know, more resident geese they stop and it kind of dilutes them along the way but uh we probably house mm, three thousand geese year round uh probably somewhere around you know 900 breeding pairs and uh two thousand um molt geese or non-breeding geese and then all of our geese are transfer geese that come from the city surrounding towns when they lock up and then another portion of them is obviously migrating geese from uh, strictly probably most of them, 90% of them migrating geese are from Manitoba. How many birds do you all end up wintering there? Um, we don't winter as much as we used to because they closed down Silver Lake. So Silver Lake back uh, was built in the 40s, and that was one of the first coal-burning uh, facilities in the country where the discharge came out five degrees warmer and kept the lake open. That's why the Giants wintered here. So we'll winter probably 10,000 now when we used to winter 40,000, but uh, we'll hit a peak, you know, come Thanksgiving, first part of December. Um, we'll hit a peak. It depends on the weather, how good the storm is, when the moon falls, but it'll be somewhere between 30 and 50,000. So there's a lot of guys hunting 30,000 geese up there because there's a lot of guide services up there. Yes, yes. I think at one point there was 13. Uh, guide services in town you know, it's dwindled down because of the amount of pressure. Guys are just kind of fun hunting more. Uh, you know, with social media, guys get deflected off. You know, other ways, whatnot. It isn't uh, the historic. Uh, that's where they only have geese. 
type of place now, you know, you can go to, you know, the cities has geese, Curtis Falls has geese, um, Hutchinson has geese, Marshall has geese, uh, Fox Lake has geese. So there's a, there's a lot of different places now that have geese where back in the 80s and 90s it wasn't so much that. And also because of the loss of uh, Silver Lake is that a lot of the goose hunting would be done in December when that was the only lake basically in the state that was open for them and had birds on them. So that's lost a little bit of its luster. So, but there's still a lot of people that hunt, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's every single field is leased up from the refuge line, probably, you know, somewhere, somewhere half, half a mile to a mile out. What, what, what's the limit up there? Is it two or three? We have three. Three is your person. And what's a bird up their way? Because I've got I've got two birds in my lodge I'm looking at right now that came from Rochester, and I think they told me one was sixteen seven and one was sixteen nine, and I can't I may be off on that, but it's well that was that that's an extremely extremely large goose. Uh, the biggest goose I've ever seen shot was uh, one of the first ones I shot, and that was thirteen pounds twelve ounces. Uh, but our geese typically. Um, you know, they used to, it used to be more of a pure flock of giants here. Now, you know, geese, there's, you know, they breeding themselves a little bit smaller, so to speak. There's not as many true giants as there once was. Um, you know, if you shoot 11 and a half, 12 pound goose, that is a big boy. Uh, most of the geese that we shoot are, you know, between 10 and 11 pounds. So why do you think, uh, that they're breeding themselves a little bit smaller? Do you think it's, uh, you think it's, you know, easier traveling, or do you think that they're just that the that the smaller goose population is is a little bit larger, and that's easier to find a, a mate that way? You know, I'm not I'm not really sure what the science would be behind that or why. I just know that there's I don't think there's as many true giant Canada geese as there once was. You know, when back in back in uh, uh, the '90s here in Rochester, especially uh, you know. Uh, there, there. Every bird that we shot had a gray eyebrow on it, and that's a characteristic of a giant goose. Now, can a small goose have a have a gray eyebrow on it? Sure. Can any size? Sure. But when you shoot, you know, a, a twelve pound goose that has a big gray eyebrow across it, that is a characteristic of a purebred giant. And I remember hunts back then when we would, uh, you know, we'd go out and kill. It was a two bird deal back then so 24 geese or you know 26 or 30 or whatever it was every single one of them would almost look the same it was just 30 true giants in a row and there's a real distinct characteristics giants have when they fly they don't get above you know 20 30 yards off the ground they fly in a straight line you can tell them with the huge white butts they're very very quiet um, and they like to stay secluded a lot of times from other birds. You know, they'll use uh, river systems a lot. And you just don't see those geese anymore. And, you know, um, we travel quite a bit, and you just you just don't find them anymore. It's almost like it's molting into an interior uh, size goose, you know, from from eight and a half to ten and a half pounds. Right. Um, I don't know really where it came from, how it happened. Uh, but it just seems like they've just bred themselves a little bit smaller, and uh, that's kind of the combination of goose we have right now and the better part of the country, too. What, what's the biggest bird you've heard of shot up there? Jeff's trying to see if the 16 pounds is true or not. Yeah, because I was told this by, you know, by a local I, Rochester. I, I, probably Dave Reese know, or Johnny Riker. There's a big goose contest. There's a big goose contest here in town. 
that happens at a local store here. And, you know, every year somebody will shoot a 14 and a half, maybe a 15 pounder, um, something like that. Um, you know, I guess I haven't, I haven't weighed every single goose I've ever shot, but you can kind of tell when they start to get up over, you know, 12, 12 and a half pounds, you know, there's, they got shoulders on them, you know, they're, <laughs> they're, they're big boys. They got huge heads and, uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's 14 and a half, 15 pound geese, um, you know, 16 and a half. Could it happen? Sure. You know, I have, I, uh, I don't, I don't have a disbelief in that. You know, um, I remember some that one of my first trips to Canada up into Saskatchewan, um, the birds we shot, we didn't weigh them, but they, they were just, they were so big and they flew so low. I'm talking, they never got you know, 10 yards off the ground, and they didn't even honk. It was just a quiet poop, like a the whole time, and they were gigantic. I don't know what they weighed, but, uh, yeah, I mean, is it possible? It could be. Uh, usually, you know, if you kill a 14, 15-pound goose, I guess around Rochester each year, you're probably going to win the big goose. Guy. Poor Jeff. Jeff got screwed over. I think Probably Johnny, by Dave Gertz or Johnny Reichert or one of those guys brought him a 16 pound <laughs> goose and it's only 14 or something. Yeah, right. Yeah, 14 can turn into 15 after years, and then yeah. 15 turns into six nine after 30 years. Yeah, exactly. Go. They've been up there a while, so yeah, I've the had them grows. Yeah. I've, I've had them since 97, 98. I think I think Johnny Reichert or Dave Reese brought them, and I can't remember who they are, but they're they're two big old birds. They were bigger than anything we've shot down here. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I got a, yeah. I got yeah. a couple couple other questions for you now as we're getting into this hunting stuff. I want to get into Scott, the personal guy. Now, you played pro baseball, is that correct? That is correct. I played the Cleveland Indians organization for about four, four and a half years. Now, are you friends with Bill Bartz? I know Bill Bartz very well. Bill worked for us one year, and he, was, he told me about you when you were playing pro baseball still. So, you so, must have started your call business when you were playing pro ball? You know, I – in high school, I played football and baseball and then worked on the farm and did hunting, of course. Um, and then I got drafted out of high school to play um, baseball. And I went and played baseball for about four and a half years, got done with that. And then I thought, well, what am I going to do now? Um, and that's when I started uh, the Bad Grammar CD. That came out in 2006. Uh, and then a couple years after that, we started our did the bad grammar DVD and then the Goose Societies and we started making calls in 2012. So, um, what position did you play? I played third base. Yep, high school played shortstop and then uh, played third base and sometimes a little left field in uh, in the minors. How far did you make it to? What class? Uh, what did I get up to? About high A. So there's rookie ball, low A, mid A, high A, double A, triple A. So high A. And the and third base. Did you did you have a good stick on you? Uh, I can hit. I hit better in high school. <laughs> 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 Those guys weren't throwing ninety something though. So yeah. yeah, I got I got a chance to play with a lot of good guys. Uh, I played with and against Joe Mauer a lot. Uh, CC Sabathia, we faced a bunch, uh, a lot of guys, Johnny Peralta, Victor Martinez. Um, but the coolest thing probably was, uh, getting to travel and see a lot of the country. Um, yeah. a lot of our teams that we were on were in the Southeast or the Northeast, um, part of the country. So I got to, you know, you get to see a lot of towns, see a lot of different things, 
uh, that was probably probably the coolest thing I took away with, uh, from it was just just the travel aspect of it. So when you were making the Bad Grammar CD and I guess DVD, you actually went out and got the the actual sound from the goose. That is correct. Yep. How many hours did it take for you to capture all these different sounds? So when I made Bad Grammar the CD because I wanted to be, you know, I went down to Silver Lake pretty much every single day. You know, they got a walking trail around there in the evenings. You just take a exercise walk and, you know, 30,000 geese just came piling back in there, you know, and it was so cool. And uh, so I was always around the goose and the audio, the vocalization of a goose. So when we went to make Bad Grammar, the, the DVD, I thought how cool it would be if a person can listen to the actual sound we're talking about uh, from the goose instead of, you know, this is the honk, here's how we do it. It's, no, this is how the goose sounds and this is how he does it, you know. So when I made that grand of the CD, I had about 30 or 31 hours and I still have the tapes um, of the goose uh, doing all those sounds. And, you know, what's probably funny is when you get to the end of 30 or 31 hours and you write down all the notes that you want to do, uh-huh. you know, the clock, the moan, the murmur, the double clock, spit note, quick spit, train, you know, on and on and on and on. You know what the one sound after 30 hours that I didn't have a goose doing was? A clock. The honk. The honk. The What, what they're known for. What does a goose do? Yep, oh, honks. Honk. Goose honks. honks. It, it yep. hardly ever honks. Really? Uh, uh, so, you know, after going back, you know, going through 30 hours and saying, Oh my gosh! I don't, I don't, I don't have a honk. You know what you have to do? You have to go back and listen to thirty hours again. Wow! And I was right. Did not have a goose doing a honk, so uh, I had to go back out and you know try to find a goose doing a honk. And it's uh, it's a very distinct you know time they use it, uh, so to speak. But yeah, so I had about thirty hours, and I think you know when you listen to that, you know it really starts to pick up on. Uh, you know, just the rhythms and the cadences and the, the body language and the meaning, uh, you know, that uh, that geese vocalize with. So it was it was not only uh, a, a tool used to teach other people, I learned uh, a ton while doing it as well. So why don't they use the honk that often? It's just not, you know, the language I think of a goose is based around the honk, the front parts, the moan, the back half, the clock. It's used in every sound they make, but typically speaking, when you hear uh, a Canada goose do a honk, a resident Canada goose or a giant Canada goose, it is meant for uh, basically alarming or signaling to another bird. You know, the two times that I had it that uh, I recorded it uh, was one in a park when a dog was walking by. All you would hear is one woman would pick it up and it would go through that low, and kind of build it up from there. Of course, it was different sounds. But what I did was I had a field, uh, one of our best fields up in town here. It's actually the one that Mike Dupert used to film uh, Tornado uh, Alley out of uh, the Rochester, Minnesota part. I had that field in it. It was January. It was, I mean, probably negative 5, negative 10 out. The geese weren't coming out until... 2.30 in the afternoon, and they were feeding all over in this field. And so I went out early. I got in our pits, 
uh, ran my boom mic out, which is, you know, probably had 20, 25 feet of cord in it, set the mic out and just turned the camera on because all I was recording was audio. I didn't have to get the video, visual of it. So geese started coming out and they started getting this field and they were feeding all over the pits because that was kind of the area that we had chewed up around and stuff. So I turned on this camera and of course back then you were using the, you know, the tape. So I had basically 60 60 minutes that I could film or catch footage with or audio with. And I just remember sitting in the pits and there had to have been, you know, I could see out a little bit of the cracks and stuff. There was probably getting to be, you know, quite a few geese in that field, probably a hundred or 200 to start with. And I had not heard a bird make a sound yet. Not wow. once. You know, you might hear the little, rrr, 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 something like that. But they were so quiet. It was just one of those super cold, still days out. And all of a sudden, a flock of geese came, was coming in, and I was peeking out, and they got to about 60 or 70 yards. And this big old giant on the ground, he lifts his head straight up, and he points it right at him, and he just starts ripping out just the nastiest honks you'll ever hear right <laughs> up these geese. The geese in the air came in and landed right next to him, and he chased them off. <laughs> Five minutes later, here comes the same scenario where, you know, a flock of tens coming in, they get to, you know, 70, 100 yards. He lifts his head up and just, rah, 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 rah. And it, that, that was basically, by the end of the day, there was, you know, 1,000-plus geese in this field feeding. And that was literally almost the only thing you heard out of all these giants all day was that one boss goose just going ripping crazy when those geese got in close. And he probably did it in a sequence of, uh, he probably did it probably 15 to 20 times. And the best part about it was, is that my boom mic batteries, it was so cold. They died that I didn't get any of the audio. So oh, it was no. Really great day. <laughs> oh no. I I couldn't imagine sitting out there all that time, going through thirty hours of tape to realize you don't have the sound you need, and then there it is. Yep. So, so it's a honk. Yeah. It's a honk. Yeah. Exactly. You get we, the sound you need. When you started competition calling, did you win your first thing, first event you got in? You know what? I still remember my first event like it was yesterday. It was in uh, Burlington, uh, Iowa, at the Mississippi Valley Calling Classic. And uh, I went there, and we had, I mean, it was, it was a great, back then it was a great contest, and it still is, but uh, um, it was the who's who. You know, you had Kelly Powers, you had uh, Mark Carey was really, uh, really on fire back then. You had the Damerons, you had, uh, you know, Ben Stoner, you had a ton of different guys. And I went there, and in my first contest, I took third place. And that was in February of 2002. And uh, that's when I started contest calling. It was kind of during um, my off-season of baseball, basically. And I would always have a goose call with me whenever we traveled. You know, I would be played with, uh, you know, guys from all over the country, Dominican, uh, Venezuela, and uh, they always, you know, they always thought I was crazy for carrying down <laughs> this goose call, and they always wanted to hear it. You know, you yeah. know, two, two down that thing, two down that thing. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and then you're in the ball goose call in the clubhouse forum, and they thought it was crazy. So I did contest calling in uh, basically the kind of the off seasons of those baseball years. So I started contest calling in 2002. 
So when did you uh, when did you pick up the live goose calling? And for for, for people who don't know, kind of explain what the how the live goose or how the live contest differs from uh, you know the main street or whatever. Sure, sure. So basically, uh, you know, there wasn't a thing of live goose calling until two thousand and six um, out in Eastern Maryland at the World Goose Calling Competition that they held, held, hold out there every year during their Waterfall Festival uh, in early November, they started a live competition. The year before that, they started a live duck competition, and that went over so good. Uh, it was really liked by the crowd and the callers that the next year, in 2006, they started the live goose calling competition. Now, what the difference is, is when you have your open competitions, there is a set routine that you have to follow. And that routine is basically, if you visualize it, is, is it a, it's a flock of geese that's off in the distance. You have to reach out and touch them, you know, greet them, bring them in, start to get them down into your decoys. Then you lose them. So you have to give them a comeback call, turn them around, and then set them down into the decoys again. And that happens over, you know, the course of 90 seconds. And what the judges are judging on that is, uh, power clarity, slow, difficulty, routine sequences. Uh, but it's a set routine, and that's the visual aspect that you're trying to uh, paint the picture for for the judges. Now, in the live routine, it's all about who sounds like these the most. So basically what you're trying to do is you're trying to sound like four to five, six different geese that are you know just walking around uh, on a pond, in a field, whatever, and you're just going through different little sequences uh, for 60 seconds trying to sound as much like live geese as you can. There's no set routine. There's no structure. It's just sound like a live bird. So that's how those two different categories uh, separate themselves. So would you go out to parks and stuff and, and watch geese interact and try to replicate that in your routine? Well, absolutely. I mean, when I, and that's the thing. I came out with Bad Grammar to see in 2006, and every sequence, that I used during my live routine all came from the goose. I mean, it wasn't, you know, a lot of people will, uh, when they're practicing their calling or they're practicing their, their open routine or their live routine, they'll say, man, I need to come up with something that's different, that sticks out. And they'll, you know, they'll try to be like, well, what do you think? How can I rack my brain around it? It's simple. Just go listen to live geese. They're probably going to give you one in the first 30 seconds you're there. Right. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're the ultimate teacher, their sequences, you know, just, they're, they're, it's awesome to listen to them if you're trying to look for something new. So everything that I used in the live routine all came from geese, you know, and I just tried to mimic, mimic it the best of my abilities, uh, but they gave me all the answers, you know, so, and, and it helped being around geese that much um, while doing the bad grammar CD and DVD that it just, you know, it bled over into the live routine. You sound like you're a driven man, you know, to sit out there for 30 hours and then uh, <laughs> you're, well, either, you're either I, driven I or crazy. Back in, you know, in, in, in 1990, you know, when I heard it behind the barn, it just still resonates with me. It's always been a, you know, I've always been uh, fascinated with the vocalizations, just the sound they can make. You know, I've never, you know, I wasn't in a high school band or I don't know how to clear networks or anything like that. Um, so I, you know, I probably don't have a musical ear and my wife says when I sing, I'm tone deaf. So, um, I don't know, you know, where it comes from, but I love the sounds that, uh, that geese make. 
that's what started me hunting, and uh, really, I still love him today. I take my kid down to Silver Lake at least, try to get down there twice a week with him, uh, even in the summer, you know, so it's always, uh, yeah, yeah, just something I'm fascinated with, I guess. How old is your son? He is going to be three August 1st, so he's, uh, you know, two uh, two years and ten months. Okay. So, yeah. I, my, son will be, my son will be four in October. It's a fun age. That's awesome. Three is a lot That's harder a lot than awesome. two. Three three years old is a lot harder than a two-year-old. Okay, Scott. Okay. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. I want to talk some hunting stories because people are going to be wanting to hear something. You go, you've go. you gone all over and hunt. What's the weirdest waterfowl you've shot? Oh, the weirdest waterfowl. Uh, common McGansers in Colorado. <laughs> on purpose? Uh, what's that? I said on purpose. No, 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 no. The season, it was all legit. Uh, we were out there for the Avery Worldwide Calling Contest in 2005. And we were sitting in a pit around Greeley, Colorado. And this pit, it was, a, it was like a gravel pit or sand pit that they had uh, mined out and it had water in it, uh, quarry basically. But it was right in town. Like, we were literally, I would say, 60 to 70 yards away from the cop station. <laughs> and there was, like, a McDonald's. I mean, it was like, what are... Now, we up in Rochester, we hunt around town. Like, we were right on the outskirts of town. But this was, like, right in town. And it was kind of, the whole thing was kind of like a weird... Is like. Like, you have that feeling, like, should I be here or not? <laughs> now, we were with people, and they hunt there every single day. And they said, now, the geese, they won't be back for a while. You know, they get up and go out and feed, obviously, and they don't come back in uh, till you know, mid-later morning. I think it was cold that morning. They didn't leave for a while. Um, so he's like, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna shoot ducks when they come in. And I still remember it. The common McGansers were everywhere. Um, like all over the place. And I remember, I never even shot at one, uh, because I never knew how fast they were. And all I remember was hearing is that they need an interstate to turn around. You'd see these common McGansers come through at like 200 miles an hour and they would turn and, you know, use a huge interstate to come in, uh, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, that was probably the weirdest experience of my life was common McGansers. I, uh, and, and one of my not so proud moments, it was, it was just shooting time and we were set up and I was hunting with Jeremy Coy. You might not know him. He's from up there. Jeremy Coy. I know Coy. Yeah. yeah. So we're yeah. set, we're set up and six birds come in and I wasn't very old and they bow up and I'm like, oh shit, take them, take them guys. And Jeremy Coy jumps out of his blind and is like, no, 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 those are coimies. So thank God we didn't shoot them. Because there is what did you say, cormorants? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what, yeah, that's what they were here. No, that, uh, common. No, 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 no. I know. No, no, I know that. Okay, but I was, I was jumping stories. I got, I got oh, confused. God. Andy yeah. got confused. He thought you were shooting cormorants. I thought you were Colorado. shooting cormies because they legalized it. Common, we're getting. I'm oh, with you no, now. No, you cannot shoot cormorants. Well, I think Not you can I now. I think they just legalized yeah, it. Yeah, North Carolina and a few states they've legalized it. Some places to try to thin them out. A common, I'm with you now. 
I think it's South Carolina, and these guys shot like 300 of them one day. CNR shoots a lot of cormorants up here. They have something called sharpshooters um, on Leech Lake and some different um, lakes up here. They uh, they allow the DNR to bring in sharpshooters, and they will shoot cormorants because I don't know if you've ever seen cormorants in the summertime where they nest. They will basically whitewall uh, a whole island, and they eat like three pounds of walleye a day. Um, and so to bring back these lakes to higher fishing, they uh, they let the, the DNR can shoot cormorants. But I've never known of a season of cormorants in Minnesota um, or anywhere, really. You said North Carolina, maybe? North Carolina or South Carolina had a hunt two years ago. It was like a conservation-type hunt, and they wiped them out on some lakes to get rid of them. Oh, so wow. did you get this merganser mounted? Did I? No, no, I never even shot one. Oh, that'd be something I've we've never shot one down here. We've shot a lot of weird birds over the years. I mean, we kill a lot of geese. We've killed some hybrids, and we kill, you know, that's basically it. We've killed a few cinnamon teal, just things that aren't normal here. I've seen old squaw here. We've shot some scoters here. We shoot brant mm-hmm. geese every year. We shoot a brant goose out here. Do you really? Yep, and we killed some a couple of years ago. We got into some Egyptian geese. We had a we had a pretty good flock of them here, and we ended up killing I don't know twenty during that season of them. We'd never seen them oh, before. Wow. Haven't seen them since. The brant geese are a long way from an ocean. Yeah. Yep. So I tell you what, I've, I've traveled quite a bit, but it's primarily for Canada geese or for mallards. You know, um, hunted divers a few times here and there, but uh, man, usually when I take a trip, it is uh, it is for it is for geese. Specifically, and then uh, you know, geese get or uh, ducks get mixed in somewhere around there. Okay, I want, I want your opinion on this now. Do you think that it's harder to shoot a greater or harder a greater giant, the big birds, or a lessers? Um, I would say a lesser. Okay, we're a hundred percent on that. What's that, that now? That's been the answer with everybody we've had on that hunts is that it's easier for some people that can shoot, that shoot graders are going to have a harder time shooting lessers than someone that hunts lessers to go shoot a grader. Sure, sure. Well, how you hunt them is totally different. Uh, y- yes. In my opinion. Um, you know, when you're talking about a true grader, a true giant, they're not real smart. Um, they're they're going to be. If you can get on their food source uh, or right in line with their food source, you got them. And, uh, you know, I remember scouting back in the day. um, Basically, all you had to do was to take where they were feeding, and then the next field out is going to be where they're going to be next. So your whole hunting was based around if you had the next field out from the refuge line. Uh, in 2008, when they shut down Silver Lake, our giants have moved out, and now we have an interior group of geese here. And there is a strain of geese, I don't know what they are, where they come from, why they're even around, but they are about 8 pounds, 8 to 9 pounds. Um, and they are what we primarily have in Rochester now, and they are the biggest bunch of a-holes you've <laughs> ever seen in your life uh so you know i think between lessers and true graders 
a lesser is hard to kill. Between these interiors and a lesser, I'm going to take these interiors because they are they are nasty. Uh, you know, you're you're talking about using 2,500 full bodies with five champion callers that have over 100 titles combined, and you are calling and working so hard that you have a headache just to break off two of them off of the back of a flock. Do, do they just not respond as well, or, or what? Uh... They, 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 they love to fly. They love <laughs> to get up and fly 10 miles before they feed. Don't know why, they just love to do it. And they travel in flocks of 15 to 60, and they love to get high altitude. And they are grass-feeding just they're nasty they get up they eat grass if the sun's out they don't fly they'll fly at night they'll come out for five minutes uh and then when they do want to go feed it's like they got to fly 10 miles and primarily all of our hunting up here in rochester is traffic hunting so we're trafficking these birds that are flying over and they come out in waves uh there's no separation like a giant you know a giant can of goose they'll come out five minutes later here comes five more Five minutes later, here comes two, you know, and what have you. And uh, what kind of reminds me a little bit about them with lessers is that if you can get a flock working, then you can start that tornado effect. But uh, it's kind of tough to do with bigger geese. Those little geese, you know, they're a little bit more aggressive um, than these are. So, yeah, they're nasty. But back to your question, uh, definitely definitely a lesser, I think, is uh, is probably – probably going to be more difficult than, than a true giant for sure. And a true giant, he's pretty call responsive too. You know, he, 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 a lot of times, you know, they'll be flying one way and just start calling. They'll turn around and come to you. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, they're very call responsive. So definitely probably a lesser over a giant. Yeah. Have, have you ever guided or just hunted on your own? No, I started guiding when I was 14. Okay. I started guiding when I was 14, and I guided up until I was uh, 29. Um, took a few years off, and then we just guide uh, about six to eight days a year up here in Rochester. We do our instructional hunts up here where it's a hunt based around um, teaching people about decoys, decoy spreads, calling, concealment, flagging, scouting, weather, moon phases, uh, stuff like that. We're going on a hunt, obviously, but it's also uh, an instructional, all-day instructional, too. And we do about six to eight days of those a year. So, uh, you know, the everyday grind uh, of guiding is is definitely, uh, definitely, I definitely left behind. I'm, I, I'm good with that. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you, guy. I got a guide question for you. And we've talked about this on a lot of shows lately. When, when you're guiding a hunt, do you get the band if the customer don't see it, or do you give it? Or, or have you ever kept a band on a guided hunt? I'm going to plead the fifth on that. So that's a yes. That's a yes. Like everyone else, I've never met a guide that wasn't keeping bands unless he had to give them up. I'm going to plead the fifth on that. I'll, t- I'll tell you this. Uh, um, I was fortunate enough that back in 2000. When Minnesota really started the early goose season because of our resident population, like the state of Minnesota has 200 
and 50,000 breeding pairs of Canada geese in it. So our resident population is huge. We have a ton of resident geese, primarily because that's where they transplanted them back in the late 60s from the Rochester flock. So our resident goose population is huge. So back in 2000, they started the early goose seasons up here where you could shoot five. Well, when they did that, they switched over from the right USA bands to the 1-800-327 or whatever bands that they have now in 2000. And what they did to study these resident geese to see if they were actually migrating geese or they were year-round resident geese, they banded local flocks of geese everywhere. And one of the places that they banded them was in Manorville, Minnesota, and that's where I hunted. And we probably had 70 uh, nesting geese, or or, or early season local geese there, and 68 of them were banded. (laughs) Wow. It was an early season, and I hunted by myself a lot, and I would shoot my five geese, and it was like five geese were banded every single day. Mm -hmm. So I accumulated a lot of bands through that way. Uh, But here around Rochester, we average a band probably one out of every 600 geese. Um, And I'll say this, I have given away... uh, (laughs) <laughs> a lot more than I've kept, you know, yeah. and uh, it's just one of those things. And actually, I remember the best line that I've ever heard was from Jeremy Coy. Uh, he said, uh, you know, guys with lanyards full of bands, if they think they're real special, let's start hanging legs off of our lanyard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Goose legs to really see who's doing it. Because now, you know, you can have a guy that's been hunting for three years and he can have a lanyard full of bands because he, you know, his local population is all banded. They'll go out and kill, you know, 14, 15, 16 bands a hunter in early season, you know. So, uh, you know, how many bands you have, you know, back in the day was, 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 was I think, a special uh, a deal. But now it's a little little skewed based on just because they're banding so many resident geese now in the early seasons across the country. So uh, to, to, to directly answer your question, though, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to plead the fifth on that. Well, I'm already on record at saying that uh, I've kept them, and I've actually kept a net collar, and that takes a special that takes a special talent because getting that net collar back, <laughs> get, getting that net <laughs> collar that past twelve guys, that takes some special talent what, to hide in that. In Rochester, Minnesota, I have seen three net collars in my whole life. Uh, one of them uh, was last year, and two of them were on a pair that came into Silver Lake probably back in the early 2000s. But last year, a staff member of ours, Mike Hewlett, shot a banded bird and a net-collared bird in Rochester that was banded and net-collared by another staff member of ours in Chicago. So that was a pretty cool story. But that's I've heard of, or I know of probably two or three different net-collars being shot in Rochester, but we we definitely do not see them very often. I don't think anybody sees them very often, but we probably see them maybe a little less than often. Yeah. So, they, uh, they put, um, they, yeah, I've never killed a net color, net color goose. They put them on specs quite a bit, so that's why we get them uh, so heavy. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, we gotcha. we, we gotcha. used to see back in the early, the mid-90s, if I looked at a flock of birds in a field, and I'm talking down here, a flock of birds is five to ten thousand birds in a peanut field field. Sure. Yep. And I, and you'd see two or three net collars in a flock of five to ten thousand birds. And it wasn't that uncommon. And we used to shoot a goose, sure. a banded bird, for every seventy birds we killed back in the nineties. I think wow, this year. Good. I think this year we killed one band over five thousand birds, maybe. I think we. Yeah. 
We, we only wow. killed one band yeah. this year. Yeah. But yeah. there was days. I've, we well, shot a, almost 100 banded birds one year in the mid early 90s, or mid-90s was what we ended up with. Yeah. That was yeah, before I got to like, keep you know, here in Rochester, you'll get a flock that's obviously, you know, four or five of them are banded. And then you'll go off season again. Not So, you know, up here, I guess the reason why bands are still, you know, people are still shooting a lot because they banned so many residents. And up in Manitoba, they banned a lot of uh, double bands with the rivet bands. Um, they banned a ton of those, you know, just at the Okamak Marsh, they banned a lot. And then north of there. Um, so we'll get some of those birds coming down through here too. But, uh, you know, I'll guide you. It's, uh, yeah, they're few and far between. That's for sure. Yeah. We don't, we don't have any local birds here and we don't, we, now to kill a band on a lesser is really rare anymore. We just don't. Oh, absolutely. It is. Absolutely. It is. So is it just, is is it just because the, uh, the the lesser population is fairly stable that they're not banding them as much or do you know uh what's going on there i think it's really tough to ban them oh okay um you know with the resident geese it's so easy to ban them yeah the u.s wildlife local dnr uh they can just go out to their their and what they banned actually is they banned a lot of molt geese um they banned a lot of those one two-year-old non-breeding geese that bunch up in the summer um, on lakes, and what they'll do is they'll start feeding them, and then they shoot a net on them, and they'll have, you know, 60 of them that they can ban. With a true lesser that may be nesting in none of it, Canada, mm-hmm. you know, who the hell's going to go up there and ban that thing? Right, you know exactly. what I mean? Um, so, you know, I think the reason why there's more interiors and giants banded is, one, because they are the the mass of the resident population in U.S. and also in Canada. In, you know, south of the Burrell Forest, the trees up there, you primarily have big geese nesting. You know, the little geese are going to be north of the forest. And, you know, I, I don't know of anybody that's walking around up there besides, you know, uh, <laughs> you know polar bear photographers and, uh, you know, uh, Eskimos. So, you know, it's, I, don't, I, I just don't think it's very easy to ban them is probably one of the things. That probably makes more sense than, uh, you know, anything else. Sure. Okay, my next my, my next thing I want to get on here, we got a kind of trend on our shows, and this is going to be way off base, and you're going to be like, what the hell is he asking? I'm nervous now. Have I love you, it. Have you ever had an encounter with a Bigfoot or know anybody? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> God. Uh, that is a next. Sometimes out turkey hunting, I swear Bigfoot was out in the woods and I scared him off somehow. But uh, no, I've never had an encounter with Bigfoot as of yet. And you're in the land of ten thousand lakes, so if anybody's going to see it, it's going to be you. There's a possibility. There's we, a possibility, but uh, I'm 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 pretty clear as of right now. We uh, a couple of our last guests have have had encounters. So one one guy's a, yeah one guy's a predator hunter and uh, it's Clay it's Clay Reed the coyote man and he he kills a kills a coyote on a competition and uh, he's going to pick up the the coyote and he hears he hears this branch and it just snaps off the tree and then about ten seconds later he hears whoom, 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 something hitting the the side of the tree and they do the coyote call. And then they they'd hear that branch hitting the side of the tree again. So that's kind of what started the Bigfoot trend on our show. 
So I've asked everybody, <laughs> so I've asked everybody if they if they know someone or they've had something. Because you spend time in the woods, you're going to see something. You're not going to know what the hell it is eventually. I tell you what, you hear some weird things out in the woods. Yes, you, you do. hear some weird things out in the woods. You know, there's animals that just, you know, it's it, it's a weird place. But uh, yeah, no Bigfoots that I can confirm of. Well, do uh, you're missing out. Have have you have you milked your last cow in your life? Oh, for sure, <laughs> for sure. Actually, I tell you what. Um, um, I grew up on the family farm. My grandpa started it back in 1946. Um, he just passed away uh, two weeks ago. And I tell you what, uh, if I could go back and farm uh, milk cows, I would love it. That was such a fun, innocent, hardworking age in America. You know, you look at you look at farming in America, and this is one thing that's really, really also has uh, um, added to the decline in waterfall hunting numbers as well. You know, back in 1970, we had over two million waterfall hunters in this country. Mm-hmm. Now we have <laughs> under a million. I think last year it finally kicked up to just over a million. But in, but, in, but in 2015, we had like 990,000. That's crazy. Over the course of 45 years, we've lost half of our waterfall hunting population. And I think one of the contributing factors is farming. There's not a lot of people farming anymore. Right. You know, back in the, the 30s and the uh, 20s and 30s, 80% of this country's workforce was based around farming whether they were the guy that hauled the milk, whether they were the guy that milked the cow, whether they were, you know, on down the line, now it's down to like three and a half percent of the country's workforce is revolved around farming. And now what you have, case in point, I grew up on a dairy farm. We milked 46 cows and ran 500 acres. Mm-hmm. Well, back mm-hmm. in the 80s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, that could feed a family of five. Right. Not right. anymore. Nope. Not anymore. So those farms are going away at a record pace. Just there's nobody that farms anymore. Uh, small town farmer. Now, if you have a farm, you're either a just running all the crop ground, or if you are milking, you're milking over a thousand cows. Yeah. And yeah. if you're farming, you're running two thousand to forty five hundred acres up around here. Down by you, it could be astronomical. You know the big ground down there, but. What happens is, is in those situations, for a waterfall hunter to go around and ask for permission, you're either in or you're out. True. You know, you either know somebody that can get on that farmer, or you don't have any ground to hunt. And if that one farmer doesn't allow hunting or just allows one group of hunting, and he's running 3,500 acres, those geese might feed on his ground all year long. And that's mm-hmm. going to drive you out of waterfall hunting. You know, high school sports now, they they got to they gotta play, you know, baseball all year round. They got to practice basketball all year round. They got to, and when it's not in season, they got to weight lift, you know. So farming and sports in high school, I think, are the two contributing factors on one of the, the, the disturbing decline of waterfall hunter numbers in this country. But uh, if I could definitely go back and farm again with my dad and grandpa i would do it in a heartbeat because it was uh it was just i mean it was uh it was pure yeah you know you you woke up and you just worked hard 
and at the end of the day, you fell asleep easy. You know, there was no, uh, uh, you know, uh, answering the phone or wondering who's texting you or this or that. It was just, uh, it was just a clean, hard working living that I think uh, is truly, truly disappointing that it is, uh, that is that it's declined the way it has. And it's it's so disheartening seeing kids now. I mean, they just we get you know, we get a lot of people that hunt through here and a lot of kids that come out. Uh, sure. When I was first learning how to how to goose hunt and everything, the the shittier the weather, the better. I want to get out in it. And and, and now Absolutely. you know, kids, they just it just they have no grit anymore. Not it, a lot. No, I remember my mom taking me to a field in the winter when it was freezing cold out. And she would drop me off at the edge of the field. I would walk out there with my bag of decoys and make a ground blind out of the snow. Jeez. She would drop me off at, you know, 6, 7 o'clock in the morning. And she would say, okay, I'm going to be back to pick you up at noon. I didn't have a cell phone. There was <laughs> nobody with me. I couldn't drive. Could you imagine how that would go with today's kids? It wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen at all. No, not at all. And that's why, you know, I got... You know, Raylan's my little boy. Um, they say, you know, when 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 are you going to take him out hunting, or when are you, when are you going to get him in the pit? Hell, his first goose hunt is going to be in a field that's so far away from any goose that he's never even going to see one. <laughs> he's going to go out to a field that's not going to have a goose beating in it or flying over it, and I'm going to drop him off, and I'm going to say I'm going to be back in four hours to pick you up, and he's going to come back and either say, Dad, that was that sucked i never want to do it again or he's gonna say you know what dad i had a chickadee land on the fence line next to me like a foot away and it was awesome wow. then i know he loves the outdoors yeah if it's the other way well then we're on to something else you know uh the outdoors and and and, and uh teaching the love of it and liking to be outside it's, it's man it's tough now you know we have kids and i'm sure you guys have the same thing we have kids that come on some of our hunts and we try to you know show them about the decoys and the decoy spread and explain what we're doing and these kids the first thing they do is they get in the pit turn the heater on and get on their phone yep and we're putting yep. out decoys yep it's like and, and the parent doesn't say anything yeah. like hey johnny get out of the pit you know i'm gonna kick your ass if you don't help <laughs> out you know putting out decoys they don't even say anything they're like oh he's probably cold yeah cold. Yeah, 13 you, years old. Yeah. Old. You know, I'm cold. <laughs> Everybody out here is cold. Yeah, you, you either get it or you don't get it at that age. You either get it or you don't. So there's no baby in Rayland. There's no taking him to a pit and turning the heater on. He's either going to love it on his own or he's going to not love it. And that's the way it's going to be. Because here's the thing, is that that kid that got taken on that goose hunt and got, you know, basically hand-fed everything from somebody put out the decoy, somebody did his concealment, somebody called the geese in for him, somebody cleaned the geese for him. All he had to do was look on his phone and then fire the trigger whenever somebody told him to fire the trigger. He's not in it for the long haul, and that's why we see a huge decline, too, is because when they get 20, 21 years old and dad doesn't want to hunt anymore, they don't know how to do it on their own. And right. they don't care enough to do it on their own because you have to put work into it. You have to scout. You have to you have the gear that you've amassed over years. You have to have the love of being outside in the worst conditions because we'll all agree some of the best hunts, the hunts that you truly remember and carry on for years, 
are when it's nasty outside, yep. terrible outside. Uh, uh, n- no other life is moving outside except for you sitting there and the goose flying in the air. And those are the hunts that you remember. And if you don't have those memories and you can't put up with that, it's not going to be a it's not going to be a lifelong tradition for you. It's just not. And you see it you see it in turkey hunting, you see it in waterfall hunting, you see it in deer hunting. It's just it's it's uh, it's sad, but uh, there's definitely results of that. And I just I just don't think there's very many tough farm kids anymore or country kids that uh, that will go out and put the work in and, and, and love the outdoors. There's definitely not. And you know, one of my most memorable hunts, I was. Oh, shit. I was in the seventh grade, so I was 12, 12-ish. It was snowing, and we don't get snow much here in Texas. And I was with Dave Ow. Reese, and it was as close to a blizzard as I've ever been in. But I bet there was a foot of snow, 18 inches of snow, yep. and I got to miss school. Jeff Jeff, and my mom let me out. They didn't, they didn't make me go to school that day. And Dave Reese and I, we had eight or ten guys. I can't remember. doesn't matter. The, so, the snow is so thick that that's what we hide in, kind of like you were talking about. We made a blind out of snow. We set out, I believe, two dozen of those medium-size um, flambeau shells. Mm-hmm. And we shot a limit in like 30 minutes. But it was the most majestical thing that I've ever seen because we had these major wads of geese that would just appear out of the snow, out of the, out of the yep. falling snow. And we were all yep. miserable. We had to walk everything in. To be honest, we weren't even sure we were in the right field because it was snowing so hard. And I fell in love with it. I mean, it was just. That's what happened. Right it was there. just. Right everybody there. was cold. Yep. And we were all suffering together. And it just, it was magical. It really was. Yeah. Do you know yep. Dave? Do you know, do you know Dave? That you'll remember forever. And yep. that's why, you know, when anybody asks, where's your favorite place to hunt? And. Listen, there's a lot better places to hunt in this country than Rochester, Minnesota. Right. Easily. But with the work you have to put in and the weather that you face, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what you grow up doing, you know? There's no better place to hunt around home, you know? And uh, it's precisely because of those days you just explained there of sitting in a falling snow and you're looking down because the snow is wet and you just hear that, ah. Yep. And you just ease down, and you look, and all of a sudden, out of the snow, here they come. I mean, that is that's what it's all about. That's that's why you make it through summer. You make it through, you know, the family stuff. You make it through all this to get to that point because that's uh, that's living right there. And I remember we stopped at the gro- at the at the gas station on the way out there, and the cashier looked and said, "What are y'all doing?" I said, well, "Where, let's where go. are you going? You're nuts." Yeah. Number one, they're like, "How the hell did you get here? The roads are terrible." And we're like, "Well, we got we got clients. We, we're going hunting." And they looked at yep. us like we had yep. three heads. Now, Scott, do you know Dave Reese? I sure do, Dave and Steve. You bet. Yep. That's who. Uh, that's who I started guiding for. Actually, I started guiding for Steve Reese and Dave Gertz when they had final approach uh, up here in Rochester in 1994. Uh, so we still hunt. That field, they don't lease it anymore or have the outfitter, of course. Uh, but we, we leased that field um, that I first guided in, uh, what is that, 20, whatever, how many years ago that was. Um, so, yeah, that's who I started with was uh, 
was uh, Steve Reese, and I know his brother Dave because early in the 2000s, we used to go up to Fergus Falls and hunt uh, molt migrators uh, with him up there on St. Paul Pass and Lightning and uh, 10 Mile and, and whatnot. So, yeah, I know him real well. Dave, Dave, I had a Rochester connection for a long time ago because Steve Reese and Dave Gertz both worked for us. Dave Reese worked for me a long time. Josh Mason worked for me. Jeremy Coy worked for mm-hmm. me. Mike Bartell. Mm-hmm. But all them, all them guys have Johnny Reichert, Johnny Reichert, but Dave Bart, Reese yep. is the cream of the crop. Of we talked about this the other day. He's the best goose hunter I've ever had work for me. I think he was a killing machine. He picked Dave over <laughs> his own son. I, I mean, he, he, the Reeses are both really good goose hunters, and why? Because they don't try to overthink themselves. Uh they they they, they want they wherever the geese wants to be and they can seal themselves. In uh, those two recipes right there, will will get you a long ways. Yeah, it, it, it's something hunting with those guys. Just because, it, and you can't explain it, but you could put Dave in a field down here, and uh, you know, kind of like you're saying earlier, you've either got the field that the birds are on or you don't because there are so limited. There's not as many farmers down here. Mm-hmm. And you could stick him anywhere, and he would kill birds. Nice. Dave's, nice. A, great, Dave's a great hunter. Um, I want to ask you about the yep. dairy. You said something about the dairy farms earlier. I, me and my wife were in uh, that area this past fall, and we come out of Wisconsin. And we came on the interstate south of Rochester. Biggest dairy farm I've ever seen in my life is there. It was lit up at nighttime. You know what? You know what it is on the okay. How big? How many cows them them guys running at a place like that? Um. You know, the big dairy farms up here will milk 2,500, 3,000 cows. How many damn people they got working? Quite a few. That's Quite a, a few. You know, you got to think they're milking cows. You know, we used to milk twice a day. 6 o'clock in the morning and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. They milk three times a day. Uh, so that parlor is constantly running. I mean, they're rotating 2,500 cows in and out of that place every eight hours. Um, so, you know, I think the God. dairy farm that's by my parents, they milk about 2,500 cattle, uh, 2,500 cows. Um, they probably have, you know, uh, 24, 30 guys working um, nonstop. Yeah, probably probably six or seven guys milking, uh, three guys cleaning two guys hauling shit out, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's nonstop. It's a nonstop, uh, uh, revolving door of, uh, producing milk now, but they have to, they yeah. have to, you know, there's, uh, uh, you know, they got to make up a lot of milk production for all the small farmers that don't do it anymore. So yeah, there's, you know, there's a lot of thousand, 600 to a thousand, but when you start to get up to the big ones, um, yeah, 2,500, 3,000 cows. That's amazing. It's a lot of milk. Gosh, I'm mighty. So you have recently started the uh, the Bad Grammar Academy. What That's is right. what is that gonna entail? So basically, in two thousand and eight, we released Bad Grammar the DVD, um, and over time, DVDs have kind of basically became an archive. You know, they're yeah, they're, they're, they're dinosaurs. Yep, much like the the A track and the CD and the. The, the DVD now and blah, blah, blah. So they're just falling in line of, of things that aren't uh, needed anymore by the average public. So, you know, 
laptops don't have disk drives anymore. I don't <laughs> even know if I have a DVD player. I don't think I do, you know. Um, so basically, there is still a need for people to learn how to call. And that need has to be uh, an efficient way. You know, you can't just like, you know, scroll through, you know, 40 different videos of YouTube and, you know, find piece together here. So basically what we did was um, I went down to Mississippi a couple weeks ago um, to film uh, basically Bad Grammar Academy. And what it's going to be is it's going to be an online academy where you purchase this academy. It's a lifetime membership. And you get all the instruction of, we have goose calling, the duck calling on there now. There'll be specs, there'll be some snow stuff, team calling, competition, field stuff, blah, blah, blah. But it's at your fingertips. Right. You know, because guys, when they find time practice to practice now, they might be driving down a graveled road and pull over and out in the country and just start practicing. Or they might be out in their garage, you know, practicing in your house, watching the TV, uh, watching the TV with a DVD playing is is not really, people can't find that time because, you know, your wife doesn't want to listen to it, the kids are on the TV, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of people don't just have a lot of time anymore, so they might practice on the way to work, when they're driving, wherever the place may be. But this way, we're always at their fingertips, and it's an academy where it's going to take you from start to finish, and it's all right there on your mobile device. You can scroll through. Uh, work on the honk, the clock, the moan, the double clock, all those different sounds, and it's all right there with you uh, wherever you find a place to practice and whenever that time may be. All right. Um, I got one final question for you. We were talking about competition calling. Where do you see competitions going in the future? Because, uh, you know, it, it's kind of a, kind of one of those things. It's kind of waning off, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know... I don't know. You know, I don't think I have an answer of where it's going. Um, I think, you know, here's the problem is I don't think the competitions are the problem um, because the, the, the World Goose, how there's still as many great prizes now as there was, you know, 15 years ago. There's a ton of different local contests that are 1000 bucks. You know, you look at Rogers, they put on a huge weekend press lease. Uh, you know, the contests are still out there. The problem is, is the individual that aren't. Right. Goose calling takes a lot of work. It takes time mm-hmm. to get good at it. And then it takes more time and more work to compete at a high level. And then it takes more time and more work to win at a high level. Well, when you start adding those things up, the, the key ingredients is time and work. Yep. What do people don't want to do anymore? They don't have the time and they don't want to work at it. So the future of contest calling is going to solely rely on how many kids are left out there that want to put it the time and the work in. Because contest goose calling, let's face it, it is a sport for 15 to 25-year-olds. Uh, you might get up there, it might be something to 30, but after that, you know, people have families, they got professional jobs, they... They, uh, you know, they got other things going on, so the time gets taken away. Well, twenty-year-old kids, they got all the time in the world. Exactly. You know, college kids or whatever the case may be. So, it's really going to be based around how many of those kids are still left, and that's why you've seen a decline over the last probably five to ten years, is because 
there's just not a lot of those kids left. So it's going to be based around those. All right. Well, I think uh, I think we've taken up enough of your time. We've gone over an hour here. I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. Man, those were easy questions. I thought you guys were going to hit me with something a little harder. You guys one final question? I got one for you then. We'll get, we're going to dive into something here. Canada, you asked for it. Canada and the United States. This, this battle between Trump and Trudeau, I think, is going to affect waterfowl hunting in the next year or two. I think if you want to go up to I'm Canada. I'm sorry, what was that? This battle between what? Trump and Trudeau, the, two, the presidents. I think with, with all the stuff going on with Canada and the United, United States and the border problems, I think it's going to affect waterfowl hunting up there in the future. I think Canada is going to make it harder for, you, for U.S. citizens to come up there and shoot ducks and geese. What do you think? Oh. Here's your hard question. You asked for it. <laughs> um, you, you think because, because it's going to be harder for us to cross the border? Yes. I think that the tariff problems and the battle between them two presidents is going to affect the U.S. citizen getting to come. I think it's going to affect the work visas for the, for the American guides working up there, and I think they're going to make it harder mm-hmm. for American citizens to come up there and hunt, which to me is stupid because we bring a lot of dollars that help a lot of them small communities out up there. Sure, sure. You know, I'll tell you this. I, I guess I have, not, I have not put a lot of thought into that. Um... um that's an interesting one, though. You know, it definitely could. Um, it definitely could uh, affect if, if, you know, I think uh, I think a lot of the tariff deals, um, you know, probably, you know, I don't know a lot about it. You know, I don't know who's winning, who's losing those deals. Uh, so it could be a lot of smoke, you know, that they're, passing other agendas or getting it to pass other agendas or whatever the case may be. But that's definitely interesting. But I'll tell you what, um, that would, uh, uh, that would make the Dakotas, uh, Montana, uh, Nebraska, uh, you would see big influxes of people traveling to those states if they can't go, uh, to Canada anymore. That's for sure. But, uh, that's what I, that's, that is a tough question because I don't have any information on it. I guess I haven't, haven't, uh, haven't, uh, haven't even thought about that yet, but I'll, I'll take your word for it on it. If, uh, if you think that might get tougher, it, it, it certainly possibly could. Um, I think in the grand scheme of things though, um, waterfall hunters going up there to, um, to hunt, um, is going to be very low on their priority list. Um, I agree on that. I agree with and, you there. And I think when you look at that, that, that doesn't involve any, any tariffs or anything like that. And uh, uh, if you are a guy that does not drink and drive or hasn't, get, hasn't gotten caught drinking and driving or has a felony or anything like that, uh, and you're clean, I think we'll be okay because I think uh, in the grand scheme of things, guys coming up to hunt ducks and geese is going to be very low on the high-end scale agenda of these guys. So I hope it stays that way because Canada um, is obviously a, it, it's a special place. Um, I like personally hunting in the U.S. more because you'll find bigger congregations of birds. We're up there. Everything is a very spread out. 
Um, and then when it freezes, they congregate in the U.S., so you're going to be hunting larger numbers of birds. But uh, um, it's definitely a special place to see uh, because, you know, you can be on a hunt and shoot, you know, seven different species of waterfall. You know, it's, uh, it, it, it's a cool thing that, you know, and it's one thing that a lot of people um, do once a year. There's a lot of people that just go to Canada to hunt waterfall, and they don't hunt in the U.S. Right. Um, right. So it's 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 definitely a definitely an interesting topic. But I hope that the million waterfall hunters that we have in this country, and maybe ten percent of them, maybe probably not even that, probably five percent of them that travel to Canada to hunt waterfall each year. I hope that they have bigger fish to fry than that. Yeah. So uh, yeah. hopefully we'll be okay. I don't. I don't think they're going to do anything regard, specifically regarding waterfowl hunters. I'm just afraid they're going to try to pass some kind of resolution or bill up there to slow down American dollars and America and, and Americans coming over with jobs and stuff. And it's going to we're going to we're going to catch the side deal of it. I don't think it's going to be based right on waterfowl hunters, but we're going to get caught in the crosshairs of some kind of bill that's passed. And it's going to affect coming and going over there. I really believe they're going to end up doing away with American guides all the way up there. I think that's coming. You think so? That could be. That could be. That could be. I know that's kind of a dicey deal up there. I've got some buddies that run uh, outfitters up there, and they said, you know, getting work visas for their guys and doing it right, actually doing it right, legitimately lawful outfitters up there, uh, because. You know, there's a lot of them that aren't, um, but to do it right up there, uh, it's getting harder and harder every single year. Um, and I think they're trying to, trying to, you know, protect their, uh, their assets up there. And, uh, you know, I don't know if we're doing the same to them or it's getting harder for them to come here and, uh, you know, transport stuff or whatever the case may be. But, uh, yeah, that's definitely, definitely, definitely an issue that could come up, uh, in the near future. One of us at this table has been banned from Canada for a year, and it ain't the fat guy. <laughs> You've been banned from Canada for a year. I did. We open. We had a. We had an out. We we partnered with an outfitter up there, and uh, September comes along, and they're like, "Okay, it's time." You know, we had sold hunts up there through this outfitter, and they had promised us work visas the whole time. When we when we uh, teamed up with these people, they're like, "Oh, it won't be any problem. We'll get them a work visa." Blah 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 blah. September rolls uh-huh. around, and I still don't have a work visa, but we've got hunters up sure. there. And uh, you know, the guides that we have working for us, a lot of them went to Canada, and a lot of them went illegally. And we got to talking to uh, an immigration specialist, and he said, "You know, just tell them this and." Odds are you'll they won't even look in your trailer and you'll just be on your merry little way. Well, we taught we caught the we caught the immigration officer that was very serious about her job, and it was not the case. It was like getting a prostate exam. It was a no go for you. It was a hundred. It was it was a hundred degrees at the border. I've got my I've got my freaking. 10 month old lab he's burning up on the t- on the on the freaking highway and uh yeah so we spent two days up there had to go had to go to a special hearing and 
guy sits me down in a little room and you know i come clean about everything because i'm i'm still talking to this immigration specialist and he's telling me what to what to say and uh so the guy comes in and he says okay so we're gonna go three routes here either we're gonna turn you around we're gonna or option two we're gonna turn you around and you're gonna be banned for a year or option three you're gonna spend six months in a canadian jail Meanwhile, I hadn't set foot in Canada. Right. And I'm thinking, son of a bitch, what have I gotten into here? And he came in, took option B, turned us around, banned me for a year, and uh, that was that. So we went back the next year after that, and we went through a a service that that you pay for a couple thousand dollars, and they get you a work visa. Because we weren't getting no help from from the outfitter we partnered up on this deal with. So... We get up there to go do it, and we ended up not getting a work visa. We got a visitor's we got a visitor's permit or something permit to to watch someone work. Yeah, and so we went up there and hunted. And I'm going to tell you right now, the, the the last ten day, I flew up there and I stayed and hunted the last ten days with Andy. And we came home, and I was never so happy to see Plentywood, Minnesota, Montana, in my entire life. It, it was well, terrible. My whole trip to Canada was ruined. I mean, I was I was just a ball of nerves. It was terrible. I can add to your guys' agony. So in about 2010 um, or 11, right around in there, uh, we had started making the Goose Society yep. Uh, yep. videos. And then we were making the Duck Society. Well, we went to Canada to film. Oh, that's a big no And it had... Never been an issue, you know, just going through, hunting, blah, blah, blah. Um, but they asked me in 2011 or whatever it was about what my cameras were for. Because mm-hmm. they looked through my truck and I said, well, we're going up there to film, blah, blah, blah. And they asked, well, do you have a Canadian worker filming for you? Yep. I was like, no, we're doing the filming. Mm-hmm. And that was a big no-no. Had to go have uh you know talk to a special guy in a room with that queen picture looking at you you know yeah yeah exactly i was in that room yeah it's like i never want to get back on american soil so fast in my life so when i got back into america you know which was only like 40 yards the other way Mm -hmm. uh i was never so happy and now uh, we just obviously leave the cameras at home and uh, just go up there and freelance. But uh, yeah, that was uh, that was a long, long day, so to speak, of uh, of trying to go up there. But uh, yeah, yeah. So it'll be interesting what they what they have, but uh, or what they end up doing. But uh, yeah, definitely the work and protecting their workers uh, with their um, you know because I think the big thing is is that Americans are coming up there and making money off of their resource that they put a lot of money into. And they, they want to try to protect that. Um, so I, I, you know, I can understand, I can understand the, 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 the working and the, the, the filming and, uh, um, you know, I, I, I guess I kind of get that, you know, we're not going up there to, you know, film, a uh, you know, blockbuster movie that we can <laughs> film in any part of it. You know, we're, yeah. you know, they, the, the good thing is that they put a lot of money into their natural resources up there and try to protect as much as they can. Um, and I think they want to, uh, 
in return that money that is being made off of that resource and that goose. Because at the end of the day, you know, we're making money off of an animal. Mm-hmm. We're making money off of an animal. And I feel, you know, sometimes I feel half guilty that, uh, you know, you're out there hunting and killing these animals. And, you know, there's, 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 I think the guys that are in it that know how to do it right. I mean, it's, it, it, some days you're kind of like, really, is this, this is what it is. But if you're doing it right, and, uh, I think the big thing is, is that you're helping other people, you're giving somebody an experience, um, then, then, then that's the good part about it. If you're just out there for the fun of it and, you know, the over the limit, the kill them all attitude, um, that's bad. Cause I mean, this is a natural resource that once was almost gone, you know, almost gone. And now we've brought it all the way back and Canada has been a big part of that. So it's, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's going to be an interesting deal up there. But I, I don't think they're going to take the, 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 the guy going across with his buddies that are just fun hunting, but I, I think that the right. outfitters, and, and, and let's face it, there's a bunch of American outfitters that own places up there, and they're bringing and in they're a bringing bunch in, of that. I would have to say almost all the outfitters. I mean, what do you think the percentage is up there? 75% of the outfitters in Canada are ran by Americans? Oh, yeah, I was yes. going to say 75 or 80. And, and, and 90, 95% of that money is coming back to America. And I really mm-hmm. believe that they're, that I think that's who they're going to crack down is the Americans that are running guide services up there. They're going to cut down on the yeah. and say, listen, you're not getting work permits no more because most of those guys get paid up front. When you book the hunt, you give them a 50% deposit. And then most of them require payment 15 to 30 days before their hunt. And it's, and it never leaves, it never leaves American bank. You know, they don't, most of the outfitters I know up there don't even have a, an account in Canada. Oh no, absolutely not. And no. so they're not getting no, any taxes not, no. off of it. They're not. I mean, it's just a. It's free money or not free money, but you you know what I mean. And it's going to probably make some guys mad that are American outfitters up there. But it's the honest to god truth. And I just see a, a, a crackdown coming on that. I got accosted at the Saskatoon airport going to fly up there because I didn't have a hunting license. And the lady sure. the lady asked me. She goes, "Well, what are you doing up here?" I said, "I'm going to hang out with a friend of mine at Hunting Lodge." Oh, are you hunting? I said, mm-hmm. no, ma'am, I'm sure not. I mean, they took me in the back of the airport and went through an interrogation. I said, listen, I'm not hunting. Well, they thought I wasn't buying a hunting license because I had a DWI or something. So they run my stuff through the computer. Well, I don't have nothing like that. I've never been arrested for anything. And they were like, you know what? Okay, you can go. But I think that I think it threw a red flag up when I said, I'm not even hunting. I'm just coming up here to film some hunting. But, boy, they crawled in my butt, too. <laughs> and I damn sure wasn't going to mention Andy's name after he'd already been thrown out the year before. No, that would be a bad thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, yeah, so that will definitely be interesting um, to see how they move forward with that and crack down because uh, um, you know it as well as I do that uh, you know the Americans are are advanced in hunting and techniques over Canada. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Uh, you know, American outfitter goes up there, American guide. I mean, you can really, you know, put a hurt on, on waterfall up there. And, uh, you know, if you got to rely on, uh, you know, the locals to help up there, it's, I don't know, could be interesting. So it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, that's definitely interesting. Interesting but, system. But I do, I maintain that there is as good or better hunting in the United States. Oh, for sure. For I, sure, I, for sure. I think Canada just has this allure about it 
and you know, kind of a bucket list type of deal. But I think if you're just wanting to kill birds, there's there's plenty of good places in America. Yeah, oh, absolutely. You know, if you want to the ultimate experience in Canada, I think is right at the end before they leave. You know, when they start flushing out of the uh, south of the Highway One corridor up there and coming into the U.S., that that time when they are down to their last 4% of open water and you can find wads of mallards that are, you know, 100,000 plus or, you know, a lake that has, um, you know, 40, 50, 60,000 geese on it and they're all feeding in one field before they leave. You know, if you can have that, that once-in-a-lifetime right-at-the-end experience. Now, they're tough to find, yep. but they're up there, but that's when you know, you can see probably something that maybe you can't see in America, uh, something like that, but that's so few and far between. But overall, I think uh, I think the better hunting uh, as far as memorable experience, because they don't group up down here. Yeah. They all group up, whether it be the Platte or uh, Montana, Nebraska, down by you just wherever. I mean, we're hunting big concentrations of birds where if you go up there 95% of the time, you're not, you know, you're hunting, you know, a slew of birds that's coming here. Well, that next slew is going there. The next slew is going there. They're hopping around. You know, it's just kind of, you know, you might go up there and, you know, you shoot a lot of geese. You shoot a lot of ducks because you shoot everything that's in that field, basically, because they don't know any better. Uh, but uh, but I think I think I would agree with you for sure that the better hunting is in, uh, is in the U.S. So save the prostate exam. Stay in the United States. Everything's gravy. <laughs> there, there you go. There you go. Well, you guys can come up to Minnesota. You can get as far north as that and then, uh, and then turn the truck off. There you go. There you go. So what, what do you got to plug, Scott? Where can people reach you? Uh, .com. Uh Sell all our calls, our apparel, our DVDs on there. Um what we do every day we love it and uh yeah absolutely what about social media where are you at uh we're on molt gear on facebook and then molt gear on instagram so we uh we run those two avenues um we try to keep our social media as up to date as possible but sometimes you just got to take a week or two off you know we don't want people to be on social media all the time because we're not on social media all the time but uh, those are our two avenues, and we keep people, especially during uh, hunting season, as up to date as possible. And uh, you know, it's uh, it's not a hoorah social media like look what we did. It's uh, it's more on the tradition, the conservation of uh, of waterfall and the finer aspects that you think people enjoy for a lifetime, and not just uh, you know not just a weekend. But uh, um, yeah, you can reach us on there. And uh, we have a YouTube channel that we started back in the day, and now we're going to start releasing hunts on there and whatnot. Uh, that's under Molt Gear as well. Perfect. Thank you so much, Scott, for your time. I know you're a busy, busy man cranking out goose calls, so we truly, truly appreciate you uh, taking time out of your day to talk to us. Absolutely, guys. It was great to, uh, great to talk to you. Uh, great to talk to you, too, Jeff. Um, had a lot of fun, and... Uh, it was awesome. Thanks a lot. Hey, look forward to seeing you and talking to you again, Scott. Thank you, sir.
You bet. You guys have a great day. You too. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's Scott Trinan, the one and only. Uh, great interview. Jeff, what do you got? Anything? Uh, I go to iTunes, go to reviews, put Tumblr in there. That's all you need to do. I'm fixing to send some Tumblrs out. I got three that won this last week. I'm going to give some more away next week. All right, perfect. Follow me uh, oh, on – oh. Go ahead. Let me say If you leave me a review – you got to send me an email or a message and tell me who you are because I don't know who T-Cat Daddy is or some of that stuff. Mm. There's no way for me to find out who you are. So if you leave me a, an iTunes review, then I'm gonna, I'll, I'll say the names next week, and you may have to send me an email. Or if you did one, send me an email or a message on Facebook and say, hey, I'm T-Cat Daddy from – and that's the name I'm making up oh, on okay. iTunes, and I'll know who you are because there's a couple of them on there. I don't even know who they are. Okay. So do that. Follow me on Instagram at Andy underscore Shaver. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good one, guys.